We're putting up new buildings, we're knocking down the old. We're working in the summer heat and in the winter cold. And the labour power we sell, me boys, for a hard and weekly pay. Produces mighty profits for the greedy MBA. And whether we were born here or born in Italy, in Greece, in Spain or Ireland, in England or Fiji, we all of us are workers, united we must stand until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our... Welcome to Creatures of the Industry, an ongoing series of oral history interviews with the people who made the building and construction industry in Melbourne and regional Victoria since the 1960s. These podcasts are sponsored by the Concrete Gang in cooperation with Community Radio 3CR. And break a couple of concrete pours to back our lug of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's class to class and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builder's labour is a name to make a man feel proud. situation where the recession came. People weren't paying their union dues and because they were out of work. And interest rates were 17% That's and right. the brickies borrowed money from That's the right. bank to build it. Yeah, well, the Commonwealth Bank wanted their money back. <laughs> as usual as, with banks. As they do. So here we are. We're in the uh, early 90s. Amalgamations are going off right across uh, the trade union movement. And 30 years later, we're looking at it and going, what the hell? But at that time, that was the salvation. In a recession, the Labor government was pushing hard. The ACTU had a view as to how bigger it would be better. And Brickies had to make a decision. How did that turn out? Well, as you can imagine, there were... It was a very difficult time for, for bricklayers, you know. It was, and you, and you needed to be sensitive to to people's feelings um, and, you know, people's, different people's background. In the end, ultimately, it was a political struggle. It was uh, a struggle between left and right. You had more conservative forces that were sort of closer to the ASCNJ sort of things, FIMI sort of things, AWU. You know, that's where they'd be, on the, you know, within the Labour Party. And you had the conservative sort of stonemasonry history. And um, and many people thought that the CFMU were just industrial union, left-leaning sort of octopus, it was said at the time, you know. Um and, and you know, during the course of the debate, it, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't an honest debate. The British Union, the members, it didn't have the benefit of an honest appraisal because it was basically the, an honest approach that was was very popular. But it was nevertheless, it was it was speaking honestly and openly to what was occurring in the union. And it was a very difficult message to sell. Um, they were very traditional, conservative-type union membership. But it was the correct message. 
and um, the question, the, the, the debate on one side, you had people saying that we weren't broke, that we could continue. We've got a long tradition of being on our own. We didn't need to join and be forced into amalgamation with this huge monster of a union. Um, and that we could get through this because we've got through everything else. You know, you can, you can imagine. You know, we've been through the recessions and the depressions and the world wars. And, and I, I respect people's history. And I respect a, a very strong message and resonated with the membership. And I understood exactly how it would. Um, but the reality was that we were broke and that the union would cease to function properly. And that would cease to be have any influence whatsoever on the jobs uh, unless we amalgamated. So it wasn't a question of remaining independent. It was never going to be a question of remaining independent. It was never That was never really the option, and everybody on both sides knew that. It was more an ex- it was a message, the independence message. You know, it was very powerful. Mm. Uh, it was dishonest. Um, we lost by 80 votes. You know, the pro-amalgamation side lost by 80 votes in the election of 1993. I'd, I'd been, Huey put me on for three months before the election to go out on the road and, you know, basically tell the members, you know, what was happening and be honest with them. And we basically told them that we, d- we didn't have any choice. And then I, I sort of explained that, you know, the brickies all around the other states of Australia we're in the CFMU, and they also knew that the AWU had found me at the time that the board them together, and the ASC and J were going to use the bricklayers union as a way of getting back onto the jobs, you know, and, and, and they had other ambitions, you know, for other building workers, you know. So, but in the end, uh, it was a disappointing result, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't a surprising result considering the history. We had also an awful lot of members who were self-employed members out in the housing industry, you know. And it was probably fair to say, because in the, in the height of the, you know, when the membership was going good, I think we had about 3,500 3, members financial. And a lot of those members were self-employed fellows out in the housing. So uh, you could see how it was, it was fairly difficult to get that vote up. You know? yeah. and, but we only lost by 80 votes, which wasn't a bad effort. So here we are. You put yourself up. You've been beaten. What was the next, what was the next step? Because the problem wasn't going away, was it? The problem was still there as to where the future lay and people had to make a choice. Yeah, look, it was it was very challenging times. I, I was still an official at the time and obviously after the election before the new team comes through and uh, basically Frank, George George Patterson went up for the on-air ticket. I, came, I was on the ticket as, a, as a, an organiser. There was only three people on the ticket. Colin Weddard from Geelong with the Assistant Secretary and George Patterson. As, uh, as as the secretary, that was the ticket, and uh, you know the ticket that got up was um, it was Frank Vigilio that lives up in um, the Eagle Hawk around the Bendigo way. You know he was uh, the Bendigo organizer, and uh, he put his name forward as part of the anti-amalgamation ticket, you know, like the pro-independence ticket, <laughs> and uh, got up, you know, as, as and he became the new secretary, you know. Well, look, it was it was very traumatic, uh, and it was on for young and old. And uh, the the election itself didn't resolve, as you can imagine. The elections don't resolve all issues. 
you're still broke, of course. Yeah. There's still choices to be made. And, uh, in his wisdom, Frank uh, calls for a mass meeting of bricklayers, which is what I would have called for too, of course. But uh, we had it in the North Melbourne Town Hall after the election when he became the officially the date that he came he became the Secretary of the Union. And uh, I had a chat with George at the time, and I said to George, I said, uh, this meeting will give us the opportunity to say what needs to be said in, in an open and honest fashion. I said, you have to cop the decision on the chin. There's no question about that. We didn't have an issue getting beaten. We had an issue with the falsehoods. Uh, we had an issue with the men, the members being lied to, really. And I'll explain in a few minutes as to how our analysis was correct in the in the end, you know. But um, there was this mass meeting called for in, in North Melbourne Town Hall, and uh, it was going to be a forty meeting. And uh, I remember it very distinctly because it was the night my my first child, Sean, was was born. You know, it was uh, it was the twenty seventh of May, nineteen ninety three. Because I remember saying. <laughs> <laughs> I remember saying to the good wife uh, who was in hospital because in those days you only went 10 days overdue and she was given the date that if the baby didn't come along on its own course um, there had to be some intervention happening. This baby was going to be born on, on Friday the 28th of, uh, you know, of May. So this is the night before of all days. <laughs> I said to the wife... I said, I might be joining in hospital. I said, she was in the Royal Women's Hospital in Canada. I said, we might be in different hospitals, you know, for the, for the weekend. Because it was, it was going to be it was going to be a difficult meeting, you know. So in the end, um, I said, we had about, we had two weeks to organise. We rallied the troops for the meeting. We rallied their troops. And uh, a lot of the people who worked for the major subcontractors on decent-sized jobs were more inclined to understand their plight and understand that they needed to have a voice, where more people out in the housing didn't really worry about whether you have a voice on the building side or not. Anyway, the, and, and I've got to be sort of very careful with uh, what I've got to say, but we had to pre- prepare for every eventuality because um, we didn't know how it was going to go, and we, had, we did prepare for every eventuality. But we go into the meeting, it was absolutely chock-a-block. Hundreds and hundreds of brickies. They come from all over. You know, Ballarat, Bendigo, uh, Geelong. And uh, to be honest with you, if we had the numbers, we just had the numbers. But and the, the whole focus to me of the meeting was just to let's have a debate. Let's have a debate about where we needed to go in the future. Accept the cop the decision, cop the vote, understand that, but let's have a proper open debate and where were you going to get an opportunity with all these bricklayers in the one room to have an open and honest debate about our future? So I thought it was a, a marvellous opportunity uh, and it was going to be very important as to how you conducted yourself at the meeting. The first thing you had to say is congratulate the other mob for, for winning, uh, but nevertheless then deal with the issues that we had ahead of us. Anyway, I get to the meeting and Kenny Barrett's in the chair now the thing about Kenny was Kenny had a bit of a he had a bit of a, a sort of disagreement and a bit of a fallout with with Billy Giles who was who had been the secretary and I, and I haven't really gone into how Billy Giles was no longer the secretary of the Bricklayers Union you know which we can't talk about if you want but 
because um, he was a significant figure for many years in the, in the Bricklayers' Union. We should, we should mention that. Uh, but going back to this meeting, Kenny had been out of the union for a couple of years, and I think that helped us because he wasn't familiar with all these faces in the room. And I went over to him at the very start, about five minutes before it started. I whispered in his ear, I said, Ken, I don't mean to embarrass you, but I think I just want to let you know we've got the numbers tonight. So I sat down on the chair and we saw George. Many Always get the first one in. And there was this robust discussion happening at the table. And Ken starts to address the meeting, and do you know what he says? It's true. It's the last major meeting of the Rickies in this city. Kenny Barrett, and God bless his soul, now he's, he's, he's passed away. You know. And um, I think at one stage he had been the assistant secretary for the Bricklayers Union and been an organiser for many years. I respect that. But uh, Ken said that based on legal advice, we're just going to call out the decision of the, the election, you know, the election result, and we're going to close the meeting. <laughs> and, 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 and I was farcical. That's uh, political suicide on a giant scale. Well, it's true. And it happened. And it happened exactly like what I'm explaining. Kenny read out the official results from the, election, from the Australian Election Commission on our election for Air Branch. And he closed the meeting, right? Now, nobody was more shocked than me because we were ready. You know, we, you know, it's a bit like going into a grand final. You, 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 the old adrenaline is pumping, you know. And you're ready for the blue. And uh, you can imagine there was uproar, absolute uproar. These fellas had travelled a long way after a hard day's work to come to a meeting because they were interested in the future of their union. He closed the meeting and that's how the meeting ended and... There was a few words said, a few people, you know, on the way out, but that was the that was the end of it. So you're talking about political suicide. Well, it was political suicide because this was the real opportunity as the new leaders of the union to really make a stand, you know, and present themselves, you know, and, and, and paint a picture of what the future would look like. You know, they had an amazing opportunity that doesn't come around too often, and they, uh, they decided to... They blew it. They, they blew it, Ralphie. There's no other way of saying it. They completely and utterly blew it. So that was really the the, the beginning of the end, really. In, in, in as far as having respect and influence in the ranks, yeah, it was uh, it was a major tactical error on their part, but only because it's amazing what happens when you apply pressure. Now, what we're going to do is just go on to the next stage of this story because that's where the rebuilding had to take place. So we're all left, North Melbourne Town Hall, quite a few would have gone over to the court hotel across the road on the corner there and a couple of other local pubs and the discussion would have started as to what the hell happens next. Well, we had their debriefing of the Dan O'Connell in Alexander Parade. Now, why would that surprise me? Good Irish pub that it was, and um, we, we felt as if we sort of it was, it was an historical occasion, and uh, 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 we just blown away by really the events of the night and what occurred. And um, however, we had to we had to move on. But uh, 
Now, I think George obviously was not uh, lost his position. The, um, well, he ran for the position of, of the Secretary of the Union, and then he, you know, the CFMU offered him a job. So George went there. So I continued to work for a little while until very shortly after. I think there was a normal, there was a normal uh, melt because this was an extraordinary meeting on the town hall, and it was for all bricklayers of all the branches, all the lodges. But um, soon afterwards, I remember there was um, there was a, just a, a Melbourne Lodge meeting, a quarterly meeting. You know, I mean, it was, I was hanging on a thread. You know, still, still physically getting getting a wage from. I'm, I'm going out there talking to Brickies at the time, but it was soon after the election. And uh, I said to I said to the wife before the the Melbourne Lodge meeting, I said, and, and Sean being born at the time is only a couple of weeks old. I said, now, love, I'm just a meeting tonight in the union office. Um, I've got to say a few things, but <laughs> I'd just like to prepare you. I mightn't have a job by the end of the week, you know. So, anyway, you know, when it comes to any general business, I get up and, and I say what I believe needs to be said. And I always felt it's important if you're in the room and you've something on your mind and you really believe in something that you should say and have the conviction to, to say it and uh, so I said what, what I believed needed to be said and I think that was a Wednesday and um, Frank Vigilio rings me up on the Thursday and said Big, can you come into the office on a Friday I want to see you I said no worries Frank no problem anyway in front of an audience I wasn't a one-on-one he called me into the office and doing the professional manner he had too many people around him I don't know what he was preparing for you know, but I was going to cop it. There was no no risk of anything happening. I cop it on the chin. But now I was duly sacked from being an official because of basically I was pro amalgamation. You know. Anyway, so that was that was that was the end of that. You know, and um, then I got offered a job at the with the CFMU, and uh, because what was happening was there was bricklayers companies coming and basically saying that there was uh, there was starting. They were on the wrong side of the, the debate. There was intervention happening in some places in relation to who worked on what jobs. It was payback time for the supporters of anti-amalgamation uh, were going to get rewarded around town, you see. This is the predicament we were in. So anyway, uh, I, I got a job at the CFMEU for a couple of months, you know. And uh, I think the painters' union at the time might have had a bit more money than average and so I think the painters might have put in a few bob to keep me going for a few months. But I was basically trying to protect those people who did the right thing. And I didn't want them to, to be, you know, builders to be unduly influenced by the new leadership, you know, in relation to who was walking and who wasn't. But after a very short number of skirmishes around the town, there was a settlement reached between the National Secretary, John Sutton, and, and Frank. Basically, the CFMU paid... Frank's wages for two years, and uh, there was no organisers. There was no organisers of the Brickies Union. There was uh, there was no action on any jobs in relation to Brickies' wages or conditions. And in that two-year period, um, things have really slipped from 1993 to 1995 because no present, no physical presence. I mean, the Brickies Union didn't have any officials. They had one fella in a in a big chair who may have may not spend some time in the office from time to time, but. Um, you can imagine what was happening on the ground. So uh, th- that was a settlement that I didn't necessarily appreciate at the time or understand. 
Less, or, less, or indeed supported, but however. Less <laughs> civilised and less uh, charitable people might say piss off money. And I, I suppose that pissed everybody off. Well, it wouldn't have been a secret, would it? What happened was that the people who actually supported, obviously, the new secretary started to get disillusioned as to what was going on. And it took up probably 18 months or so. And then they started to look for alternatives and saying, we can't, this can't go on. So I was tapped on the shoulder. I'd, I'd gone to work for, um, when I left the Union Force, Tony Brady gave me a job for a couple of weeks, you know. I worked on uh, Eastland Shopping Centre. It was good that Tony gave me a job. A lot of other fellas that wouldn't have gave me a job. But uh, after working with Tony for a couple of weeks. Old Bricky himself? Uh, yeah, uh, he was a Bricky in those days. He's gone on to bigger things now. But, uh, you know, he had a sizable gang at the time and um, used to do a lot, of, a lot of the decent jobs around town. But I, I got an offer to become like a trade teacher for the Building Industry Group training scheme. And, and the money wasn't as good, uh, but it was something that I'd, I knew I'd enjoy, teaching the young young apprentices, you know. So uh, that was what I actually did for for two years, you know, uh, after the election. I actually, I worked on them directly before Tony gave me, gave me a job. I actually worked on Pilkington Glass, yep. another refactory site in the... Job we rebuilt the, the furnace down there, the main furnace. I think there's only one big one. In South Dandy. In 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 South Dandy on Greens Road there. So I was on, I was on that rebuild. That took months, and that was again it was good money, long hours, and uh, that got me, you know, on my feet. And um, so, but again, like all shut down jobs, comes comes to an end, you know. So it was after that shut down job that I got an opportunity to work as a sort of a trade teacher with the building industry. Biggs, as they used to call it at the time. Yes. Yeah. So while I was at Biggs, um, I got approached that, you know, we needed the British Union. And I, I joined the CFMEU. Uh, I wasn't going to pay me money to, to an organisation that wasn't doing nothing. So I actually, you know, straight afterwards, I mean, obviously I, I worked for a while for the CFMEU, but I continued my membership with the CFMEU, of course, and even to this day, a financial member. But... Um, they said something needed to be done and asked me would I would I like to come back and because we want to gain constitutional coverage for Brickies in Victoria, you know, the CFMU. So I um, I could see what was going on or what wasn't going on. And um, after the discussions with the good wife, I, you know, decided I'd, I'd give her a go. So I was taken on for three months probation. <laughs> <coughs> And the union wasn't going terribly well financially at the time, and uh, I won't say I won't say who. <laughs> but after leaving the good job, uh, and only got any job that pays you on a weekly basis is a good job. But uh, after leaving the good job, my introduction to the CFMU at the time, and, and I wasn't an official of the union, but it was somebody in an administrative capacity said, "I don't know why you're starting, Fergal. We actually need to get rid of blocks." We got too many officials. I said, "Well, I just I might have to pay me way then, eh? Like I do lay me bricks." So that was my introduction. So I didn't know whether it was going to last for three months or not. I didn't know if it was going to last three weeks or not. Anyway, I lasted twenty-five years. Well, there you go. <laughs> Suggests that uh, someone, by good judgment or bad, made the right decision. <laughs> but anyway, we're. Here we are, it's 95, I take it. It is 95, yes. It's and at that stage, you correct me if you think I'm wrong, but 
By that stage, the industry is was coming out of the recession because the recession was more than just oh, yeah. the worst of the, of the, the the period, which would have been ninety one, ninety two. It took a long time for the industry to recover. Uh, following deregistration, following the recession, the industry was in a bit of a mess. There were the big ones were still big, and uh, the middle order were all over the joint. It wasn't a settled industry. There were people who were on the make. There were people who were going out backwards. There was like it was a very messy period of time, and yeah. uh, at that stage, Ricky's were probably thinking basically the union was uh, no longer interested, mm. and uh, we were heading rapidly towards a non-union situation with. The, in, the sector of the industry. Well, well that's, that's in fact what, was, what happened in those two years. <coughs> uh, and it was, it was inevitable that it did. We had a recession and then obviously people got used to not being in the union, you know, hung up yeah. their tickets or c- came out of it, maybe maybe went to different areas to look for work in the meantime until the industry picked up again. You know, um, and Of course, once they were out of the union, they chose not to come back because there's no presence there and wasn't much getting done. There wasn't anything getting done. So, uh, so I started on, in May 1995 at the CFMEU. It was important that we got constitutional coverage because we still haven't got constitutional coverage. I don't forget in 1992 that the Brickies voted against the amalgamation and uh, and then again against the amalgamation with the, the election. So um, we had to find a way of basically getting constitutional coverage in the state of Victoria for, for, for the Brickies. And there was still opposition to that, by the way. Even though it's, the deal got done, the deal wasn't done to that extent of accepting constitutional coverage by the CFMEU. So that took a while, and um, in the end it was achieved. You know, I remember working with Tom Roberts and Martin Kingham at the time, and John Sutton was important. And, and the basically application said that I was coming, I was part of the application. In fact, I was employed to help the brickies in this state to, to rebuild and that the, the union were investing in that and that, that you should be given. But basically, legally, because we didn't get it the first time round because there was opposition to it. Once there was opposition, it made it difficult. So I actually had to persuade Frank to, to jump on board and to accept it. Frank, um, I remember going up to see him. I, I won't say I was still not comfortable in telling the whole story, but it was fair to say that uh, Frank went and joined the shop distributors union as an official, you know, at this time. So you could see the political differences between People us. looking after their own. So, uh, but nevertheless, to give him his due, uh, he did agree and, and he did support me in coming on board. And I said, I, went, I drove up there, I drove up to Benigal to meet him. And I said, well, you know, basically it's... It's an obstructionist role. We we needed to wipe the slate clean and move forward. And, and it wasn't about me or him. It was actually about bricklayers in this state having representation. So when we put the application into the to the commission, um, it was with his acknowledgement. You know, there was no opposition to the application. So we got that soon afterwards, in the middle of um, nineteen ninety five. We got we got constitutional coverage of bricklayers in the CFMU in this state. 
But the work that was done, again, correct me if I'm wrong, the work that was done was actually going around and eyeballing bricklayers. Oh, well, and making sure that they were in the CFMEU. Because yeah. otherwise, um, you can have all the lawyers you like, but you've got to have something to base it on. Well, you had to start the hard walk again, and in many ways, start from scratch. And uh, you, you lost all those members in the housing, yep. and they never came back. And uh, the vast majority of them didn't. So it was to focus on the commercial bricklayers. Uh, there was enough of work there. There was enough work to do to, to rebuild it. And, um, so one of the first jobs I remember going to, and this is no exaggeration, there was 40 bricklayers on an L.U. Simons job in High Street, Paran. And uh, one bricklayer was a member of the, of the union at the time. And they'd been working on the site. And, and people left them alone. They didn't ask whether they were members or not. And they were all on PPS. All of them were on PPS. And the the bricklaying company in that, two years had gone from being a mid-sized comp- bricklaying company to be the biggest bricklaying company in two years, employing more than any other company. And obviously doing a lot of value assignments work, you know. And one out of 40, that's where we started. So I remember I was with Dave Noonan at the time, and uh, he witnessed some of the robust discussions in the sheds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's amazing when people get out of the habit of doing things, Yep. And you got to start from scratch. They were all on PPS, and they, there was a mixture from the from the housing anyway that they were always on PPS in the housing. So you had a few of them, and they were quite vocal. You know, that being, being on PPS saw me life. <laughs> and then I said, Well, there's other fellas here that understand Incolink and sick pay and holiday pay and all the rest. I said, This is what we fought for for many, many years. You know? So PPS, uh, we should just interject here is. <laughs> The old system where you were so, so-called so self-employed. Prescribes payment system. At least they paid tax. They did. It wasn't much, but wasn't they much. did pay a percentage of tax. Well, you could claim that you were running your own business and plenty of tax deductions along the way. Yeah. But you got sick, you were, you were in strife. Yeah. If it rained, you didn't get paid. If you heated off, you didn't get paid. And... Uh, when it came to Christmas holidays, there was no holidays. You had to keep on walking and find a job that was open. So, you know, we had that debate, the differences between on wages. And, and to be honest with you, the, um, the enterprise bargaining system in 1995 was, was only about two years old. The EBAs came in around 1993. And I remember that the first mass meeting for, um, for the EBAs in Dallas Books Hall, and it wasn't a very well-attended meeting in 1993. It was actually on the glass tank in Pilkington when that was called CFMU. So, you know, it wasn't. It took a while to, to get going, but they were good years, you know, the next five years of plenty of work in the industry, and, and we, we achieved a great deal, you know, being part of a big organisation that had the resources. I think, you know, Martin had Martin had, had won the election in 1993 with Martin Kingham and Bingham ticket, they went about six, I think about three months after us. They had the election three months after we had, you know. And um, all the um, all the, other, the three other divisions with, this, with the VSBTU went, the leadership were, were pro-amalgamation, you know. It was only the British Union election that went the wrong way. So 1995 was interesting times. It was the EBA started to, to come about. The union started to rebuild, you know. Martin's team was, uh, was getting very well established by that stage, you know. And you had... Um, you had, I think, Como was 
Jordan 1993 1997 that ticket I mean I was a part of the national fix with the with the BL you know with with the other states and I think he was sent up to Darwin at one stage so I remember when he was sent up to Darwin but you know you had that uh, well you had that big debate in the election it was a very close election between you know people understanding and accommodating the BLF agreement if you like for want of a better word um and uh, you know, it was, people forget sometimes that it was a fifty-two to forty-eight vote with the head Henderson Saddington um, thing was was fairly close, you know. But um, to give Martin his due, he really, you know, we we got things moving and we became uh, from a slow from a slow start because we was coming out of a recession and it took us a while for the UBAs to get going. But I really think we hit our straps and we were, you know that was the last five years in the in the nineties. We um, we achieved an awful lot. Achieved an awful lot. Well, the union was rebuilt, uh, not just as a sector with the brickies or a sector with the plasters. It was actually rebuilt as a union because the war had gone on for probably at that stage the best part of ten years, yeah. and it was a war. Yeah. And I suppose, like all wars, there's lots of war stories, but at the end of it. There was one building and construction union that could be called a building and construction union because I won't go into uh, my thoughts on the AWU, who aren't a union at all. But anyway, the union was rebuilt. It was successful and we started running industry campaigns Mm. because... Not everyone would understand it, but uh, in the 90s when the Labor Party was in government, when Keating was Prime Minister and Laurie Brereton was the Minister for Labor, um, EBAs were supposed to be a company-by-company agreement. Mm. Other than that, you're on the award. And uh, that didn't go down well in our industry. And it was a credit to the leadership uh, in the second part of the 90s, that they actually said, no, we want an EBA for the industry. So it was an industry standard and everyone can sign their own agreements company by company, but it'll be the same bloody agreement. That was the breakthrough in my humble opinion. Had to be that way. Had to be that way. When you when you look at the legislation that gave us, introduced, you know, enterprise bargaining system, it was really a, a system that avoided workers was an appalling system, really, uh, that you'd have workers in different, uh, you know, within an industry and all on, you know I mean, on different rates of paying conditions, you know. I mean, it was a classic case of, of completely uh, dividing uh, an industry up and, uh, and not having industry standards, you know. So it was a, it was a credit, of course, with the, the brickies that my understanding over the first two years in 1993-94 there was seven and a half percent increases came through. You know, I'm not saying everybody got that, but they were the they were the EBAs at the time. So in 1995, I always remember, um, and again there was um, seven and a half percent increase in 1995. We had to get um, we had to get 22 and a half percent pay increases <laughs> because we've missed out for two years. You know, so uh, the first major dispute I had. In the refactory sector was down at Crows. Crows had a yard in Francis Street down there, and uh, and you know things were, as you can imagine, sometimes 
time is a wonderful thing because it allows you you things are simmering you know in the the workplace people haven't had a pay rise for you know a couple of years so they they were ready Uh, they were ready for the blue and uh, I basically was, was saying to them well we're in the big union now and I said we're not going to have the bricklayers being discriminated against. So I said, we're very proud trade, proud traditions. So whatever the carpenters are getting, we're getting. So these are the rates of pay. I've uh, gone down, and uh, even the foreman, who I thought would be, <coughs> would might have something to say, the foreman of the Crows, they wanted a pay increase too, because they were only getting a little bit more than the troops, you know. So it was a wonderful thing to have, Everybody in the gang united, and we made a decision. Well, it was pretty much then and there that the troops were walking in the crow yard with, with sitting in the sheds. There was no build up and no warning. It was almost as if they they seen me. They were ready, you know. And, uh, I remember called the the Ken Warren. You know, they had an office in, in Stamford Street, just off the, the Furniture Gully Road there in Waverley or something, wherever it is. They didn't have their offices. Management had a nice, shiny building. Uh, this was the yard, you know, where they do a lot of the castings and things. He said, Fergal, you, you sprung this on me. <laughs> and, of course, the last thing I was going to say was the troops sprung it on me, you know. <laughs> so, anyway, of course, I said, well, it's been a long time coming, Ken, this one. You know, you've got a very... They had, they had, the, you know, they had terrific refractory bricklayers. They, they were the biggest and best refactory company in the state. And they had a very strong tradition of having plenty of apprentices. And the apprentices stayed with them. And they had very good, knowledgeable bricklayers. A lot of the bricklayers came from the steelworks in, in the UK. They're very knowledgeable and uh, very good to work under. I can actually say I worked for Crow Refractory. Did you? Yeah. Different times. So, anyway, I remember saying to Kenny, he said... What do you have to pay? I said, 22 and a half percent. He said, that's outrageous. He said, how am I going to get that off my clients? He said, that's not fair. I said, Kenny, you've got a big shutdown happening soon. I said, now, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't I be doing the wrong thing to call the blue in the middle of that shut when you had no preparation to price the job appropriately? You've just shot in between the eyes. <laughs> What what I dare ask was his response. It didn't take long. <laughs> it was all stitched up in a day. And the bloke's got a 22.5% pay rise. And it would lay the foundations for all the other refractory companies because they matched them. And really, in one whole jump, we were back on track. And that's what industry EBAs are supposed to be about. So that was the refractory sector stitched up. No, it didn't take it didn't take long there. There was a bit of work happening. We had a car industry then. We had a lot more refractory work happening in those days, you know. So then the focus was on, on building sites, you know. The focus was on getting the brickies to join the union, getting the there was some some terrible some terrible practices happening when the when the cat's away, you know. You know, there was instances where and I won't mind name companies, but some companies did the right thing throughout and I respect them. And they didn't change. They looked after the troops. Other companies took advantage of the situation. And sometimes you had to, you know, I remember going on Scotch College again, another another stage of an extension down at Scotch College Junior School. And the only the only troops on the site not getting the site allowance was the brickies. Yep. You know, it was heartbreaking. 
until you did something about it, of course, you know. And then once once there was a bit of organisation, a bit of leadership, and also the, the strength of a big union behind you, and then it wasn't just, you know, the, the builder had a union problem on the job, he didn't have a bricklaying problem. That was the difference. So the 90s was, I'm not going to say a golden age, but it was certainly a period where the industrial scene in the industry in Melbourne turned around. How did it go in the regional areas? That would have been a bit harder. It's always been very difficult in the regional areas because of the lack of continuity of work. I mean, you know, particularly Ballarat and Bendigo, not so much Geelong is a different case. But in the regional areas, brickies weren't employed with sort of commercial contractors every week. You know, there'd be a job in the area and they'd do, and then they'd go back to the housing. So it was always very difficult. But in the early days, they had EBAs. I mean, they worked on what we'd call, it wasn't classes union jobs. It was classes industrial and commercial jobs, jobs that were covered by the Green Book. You know, and, and, and of course, I had the benefit of the Green Book in 1995. And we should just say the Green <coughs> Book was literally green. It was a little book that fit in, fitted into the shirt pocket and it set out an agreement with the Master Builders Association and some other employer associations which set side allowances, redundancy payments and other benefits which were applicable across all employers who were members of those organisations. A practice which was discontinued by federal government legislation in 2005, but uh, we incorporated into the EBAs that came after 2005. And probably, in my view, the most significant clause in the Victorian Building Industry Agreement was the all-in payments clause, because that's what that clause benefited me in my campaign against PPS in the bricklaying sector in the mid-90s. Now we have ABNs with the same problem. Yes. The uh, world changes and it goes right the way around and comes back to where it started quite often, unfortunately. But in terms of where the industry was at the year 2000, I would have said uh, there were a few hiccups economically, but uh, we were in a good we were in a good space organisationally and uh, we were at a, the start of what was basically been a 20-year boom. Yeah, it's unpre- unprecedented um, and I think the union has really benefited uh, and, of course, the troops. More importantly, um, the continuity work, that, that security that, was, that wasn't always there in every other generation of, of building worker. But uh, don't forget, we, we were very busy in the mid to late, 90s, because there was always plenty of things to do. And there was always plenty of campaigns up, and we, we obviously came to the defence of the MUA. But the first thing we did, obviously, with the with the governments, the new government, when in '96, when the, when Howard got elected, what was the first thing uh, Costello did? Peter Costello, first thing he did, and he wasn't in the chair. You know, the chair wasn't even warm. He decided that we um, he taxed their travel allowance. You know, so uh, that was a very important campaign. It was a very significant increase in their in their travel allowance. We basically said if you can, if you take something away from us, we're going to get it back. You know, and um, I think it was a very symbolic of how we treated um, those eleven years at Howard. 
Because we never took a backward step. You know, you do something to be a reaction, and, and uh, you know we we were at a, we were we were in good shape then. We were at our fighting best. I think we were. A lot of us were were, were very young, and and, and uh, we had plenty of energy. And uh, you know, we were all energized by being part of what I thought was. And it, you know, it was a Premiership team we were playing on. We always felt that. You know, I was very proud to be part of it. And we'd already had a bit of practice. We'd played a practice game against Jeff Kennett, and then his need to build monuments to himself, like Federation Square, actually <coughs> helped produce some major breakthroughs on shorter hours and so on. So we, we went into the new millennia, front foot forward and uh, pushing hard, and we got shorter hours for a start. And while there was a, a gradual introduction with the so-called... Uh, PLDs. The PLDs. The productivity leisure days, uh, going up till we got to the full nine. Uh, so, well, we achieved that in a couple of years, but uh, we had some hiccups internally, I must say, with the shorter hours. Um, the rest of the union around Australia wasn't quite as committed to uh, achieving the 35, or as it turned out to be, the 36. They were still happy with the 38 at RDO a month, which dates right back to 1983. But in Victoria, we decided to take it on and, uh, well, we ended up in a blue in our, among ourselves. But at the end of it, we did proceed with the campaign and we won the campaign. Yeah. And uh, it just shows you what momentum will do. Yes. There's a lot of people who were hardly, even among the rank and file, who were hardly committed to the campaign. Yeah, it was... Uh it was one of the more difficult and protracted ones, uh, and and we persisted. It was persistence in the end that, that got us there, you know. Um, I don't know how we did it at times. I don't know how we got there at times. Uh, Listen to some people's private views off the record. But uh, I, I think the union can be very, very proud because we actually delivered that for all unions. And this is not the time and place to... To reflect on the contributions of others, but there can be no doubt that it was the CFMEU that delivered the 36 hour way to our industry. And under difficult legal parameters laid down by what Howard and his various Labor ministers had managed to achieve in the late 90s in terms of legislation, we had to play uh, pretty smart. We had to keep moving the uh, goalposts and uh, I must say that the other unions uh, in the BIG did their part and uh, we were able to achieve that uh, shorter hours. And I can remember having a, uh, a bit of a celebration up at Lincoln Square, up uh, top end of Swanston Street one weekend uh, mm. when we were having, uh, well, we had a big barbecue if I remember correctly and we... In, we celebrated in some style the, uh, the introduction of the productivity leisure days. Yeah, and then we had the proper celebration in Federation Square. Yes, indeed. When it came in, I think Tommy was the main instigator of that, yes. and then he was rightly so. He said it was an historical occasion, yep. something that we don't achieve too often, and it was time to have a celebration. And for all the shit that Jeff Kennett did to us over his term in office, which ended in 2000, but one thing he did do, and sometimes you've got to be careful what you wish for, he introduced, by agreement, 36, on the building of Federation Square. Yes. 
And if it was good enough for the state government, <coughs> it was good enough for everybody else. Well, you had, a, you had a situation also that you, you may have been part of a company that had some of the troops working on shopping centres yes. at the time where some in the company were getting the benefit of the shopping centre allowance and the shorter hours and some weren't. So, you know, we had some very strong. And, and most of our troops who got the opportunity to work on shopping centres for years actually enjoyed working on shopping centres. So when we had start talking about the 36-hour week and spreading the industry wide, you know, there was... Fair amount of enthusiasm for it too. Yes, indeed, and maybe just a little side note. Back in the 1980s, there was an agreement reached with Grocon for shorter hours. Unfortunately, because uh, the deregistration and all the rest of the shit that went on uh, was never pushed out, and Grocon did work nine-day fortnight, uh, but... Every second RDO was an overtime day. There weren't too many choices about having the day off, but there was always that history of a nine-day fortnight, even if it wasn't getting recognised. And uh, really, I'd say that and the introduction of Inkalink were probably two of the biggest changes I've seen in the last Hmm. few decades. What do you reckon? Yeah, and, and just talking about Grogon, I mean, during the course of the 36 campaign, they wanted their own understanding and arrangement with the union at the time too, which which didn't do us any harm, you know. George, George Gray came down from Sydney and uh, got some people in a room and uh, tried to tell them how it was going to be. That was when they were on the best behaviour. That was when you had the other generation still having some influence on the place, you know. Yes. Anyway, looking back on all that time up to what? When did you give it away in the end? After working for the union as a full-time official for sixteen years, um, Bill um, Bill Oliver um, suggested, you know, that there was um, Billy Davis. It's gone to retire from the um, from the disputes panel, and I had spent, you know, I was I was very familiar with the disputes panel, as you can imagine, <laughs> over uh, the years. You know, a few attendances, <laughs> a few, uh, you know, and we fair share of attendances. I had a lot of time for Billy Davis, a lot of time for Bill. He was, uh, I had a good working relationship with the with the plumbers and and the, and the Sparkies, you know. And uh, I remember early days in the, the mid nineties, I used to get around with Alex Van Ingle quite a bit, and Alex was always, uh, you know, very good to work with, and, and he, he had very good politics and, and an international perspective on, on, you know, the struggle of workers around the world. And and uh, Bill was the same. Bill wasn't primarily focused on building workers in Victoria. He had a he had a broader view. It was all just part of. The, you know, the, the overall struggle. He had an international perspective. Bill, he was very interested in the Irish struggle. And, um, you know, he travelled He travelled to different countries. Like, um, he, he loved the States and, and the, the strong association with the unions in, in the States. And been to, been to uh, quite a few places around the world, and including the Philippines, and that over the years as an official. So he was a bit of an elder to me. I, I always uh, enjoyed my time with, um, with Bill. Billy Davis and, and uh, sitting down and uh, you could always learn a lot from just listening to 
to all the fellas in the industry and the, and the, and the campaigns and the struggles they had, you know. So um, I had a chat with Billy Davis too before I, when Bill, you know, offered to, offered me the position. And to be quite honest with you, after 16 years, basically full on, I, the body and the mind was saying maybe I'd appreciate a spell on the bench, you know. And uh, take me off the pitch for a for a while, and we'll get to go back later. And the old uh, ginger ninja hairstyle was uh, disappearing <laughs> a bit as uh, it turned grey. I, I was, yeah, yeah, well, no, it's um, well, incidentally, I I I caught up with Bill about I went down to see himself and Joe about two two weeks before he passed away, and we had two lovely hours together, myself and the wife, and. and Bill and his wife Joe, very special occasion, and we told a lot of the stories of his past, you know. But um, yeah, no, it's it's great that you're doing this, because you you're sort of keeping this oral history, you know, going. Yeah, otherwise, it'll be lost. But um, you know, Billy Davis would have been a great uh, would have been great to have Billy on a show like this, you know. And I don't know whether he's ever been interviewed before, but. Uh, uh, Bill was was always full of stories and, and always um, very entertaining to be around, you know, and, and we'll miss him greatly. So you're on the disputes panel, and then what crazy thing did you do? Well, see, <laughs> as I said to my, I said to my uncle uh, Jim O'Brien, who lives up in Bendigo now, and, and he, again he was a bricklayer. I said. The Irish have a wonderful madness about them. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, I was never an office boy, Ralphie, and uh, I was getting a bit claustrophobic. And the union asked me to do the job, and my loyalty is to the union. It's never been to any individual, even though a lot of individuals you have an awful lot of time for. But no individual is more important than the union. The union asked me to do the job. Billy's asked me to do the job. I He said... We need someone half sensible. <laughs> you know the way Billy would put things. We, yes. to, we don't have, so what you say, Billy, we don't have too many half sensible people around. You know? So, uh, so in reflect again, the, the wife has always been um, a wonderful support to me over the years. And, and any, any decision I've ever made, I've always, she's always been a great source of wisdom. So I said, I think I'm going back on the pitch again, you know. And she said, uh, have you had a good rest? Said, yeah, I've had four years of a rest, you know. You know, many times I'd be, I'd, you know, I'd be tossing and turning in my sleep during the course of a major blow. And, you know, she, she, she understood more than anyone the, uh, the challenges of a, of a union official and a militant campaign in union. So she said that, you know, you only live once. If that's where your heart is, you know, go for it. So, But uh, I always felt I was going to make another more of a concept. A better contribution than than, than there, and, and to be honest with you, the disputes panel was getting less and less busy, you know, which was a bit of a concern of mine. And uh, you know, being a bricky on the on the line, you don't hang around, stand around. I mean, you're more than your bricks are there. You're used to moving. You're on the go all the time. You don't, you know, and you 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 like the fresh air. And to be honest with you, what I really missed the most at the disputes panel was the connection with the troops. Because I really, even though it was a very stressful job and, and your, your life is full of conflict, and that does take its toll, but the pleasure you get 
from having wins and the pleasure you get from just sitting down and, and you know, having smoke with the troops and keeping away from the union office for as long as you can and just spending time on the ground with the with the troops, getting around the job and looking at the working conditions firsthand, introducing yourself. It's all about presence. It's about having the union presence and, and workers relating to their union. That's the important bit. And relating to the union official and trusting them. And, that, you know, some, I mean, sometimes as you're walking around, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intelligence exercise. Walking around the building, so you're talking to men. It's an intelligence exercise. You're picking up things as you go along. People are telling you things on the side. They're telling you where to look yeah. for. And, and you're just touching base, you know. And, uh, and, not just, just, and not just on that job. And uh, that's what I found about organising Turak and those big homes in Turak. It was pretty much the same. And they weren't, all, they weren't in the Cordell reports, you know. But that's how you'd pick up the info, is to, because they'd work on a number of different homes at the same gang, and they'd tell you where the jobs are. Yeah, so I always enjoyed that. So you came back, back on the road. I came back... Uh, for another four years, yeah. So maybe nearly four. So I think I calculated. I calculated the best part of twenty-five years as representing the CFMU. Yeah, yeah. Came back for four years, and, and I'd, I'd still be there today. I think that's if they'd have me. But I've um, unfortunately, my wife um, got two shocking diseases together. Fairly complicated. Um, by the time we got to the end of it, it took about 18 months to figure the whole thing out. Uh, so I decided that we'd, I'd retire early and, and spend a few years um, just smelling the roses because those years are going to be very precious. Now, here we are. We're in retirement. I'm not sure if you're still tossing and turning, but you would be thinking about all the things that uh, you've experienced, all the things you participated in, what do you think, looking back, not just on your time in Melbourne, but also your time in the industry around the world, what do you think have been the biggest changes? What have been the good changes? And what have just been changed for the sake of change and didn't really do much good to uh, working people? It's a big, big question, but I'm sure you've reflected on, uh, on those sorts of issues. Well, probably the, the biggest disappointment in the industry is the role that the WorkSafe Authority are playing. Really, uh, the, the lack of support, the lack of enthusiasm and passion that, 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 that they've delivered to our industry. You know, uh, how many times they'd let you down and wouldn't support you. I just wouldn't turn up. Hmm. The amount of times they tell... Builders who rang them on the side. They've devolved into a very discredited organisation. Because I remember the DLI. I remember when we used to have good inspectors doing a good, decent job where there was a little fear element of them coming onto the job. The fear has been gone for years now. Nobody cares or notices whether the WorkSafe Authority are in the workplace or not. They've just become so... Ineffective. Ineffective. Uh, that's probably one of my, just looking at that organisation, how it's evolved in the last 25 years, where the decent men have gone to the side and retired, and, you know, what's there, and how they 
performing the, the job. That's probably one noticeable difference because I think you had inspectors that were came from our industry in the past that understood, had a great understanding of, you know, they had a, an area of expertise in the industry, whether it be grains or anything else, you know, and um, they could be called upon uh, to support you against the builder. But now they're ringing up builders before they attend the job, you know. I had one inspector writing on and out was saying that the pergo was pursuing an EBA on the job. This is it, one of his notices that ended up in a court case. So that was presented to the court. I mean, it's disgraceful carry on, you know, at times and, and disappointing. So that's on the negative side of the changes in the industry. That, you know, one of my uh, big disappointments is seeing how, the, how an organisation that was set up to protect and support workers just hasn't delivered. Uh, and there's no sign of it ever delivering. You know, and really what is disappointing, Ralphie, is because we've had a Labour state government for so long and we have an organisation in, 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 acting in such a disgraceful way. But that's just my own humble opinion from my own interaction with the, with the organisation over many, many years. Um, I think that the, the wonderful thing about the industry at the moment is, and a, and a real change is, and, and the young ones won't understand this, is the continuity of employment in the industry. Because for generations, building workers had so much uncertainty in their lives. You know, they had to leave their families at times to earn a quid and they had to look after two homes. You know, they, um, they were in and out of work. They didn't, uh, they didn't have that consistency. They had good, good years and bad years or good weeks and bad weeks. Um, they didn't have things like superannuation and they didn't have things like income-link redundancy to cushion the blows, if you like, yeah. So really it's um, the standard of living of building workers now compared to what it used to be, you know, and obviously that continuity of employment has, has helped the standard of living. I'm not saying air troops have got any more radical as they became more paid, better paid and, and more continuity of their employment. But nevertheless, we have enjoyed, particularly here in, in... And I speak to my brother, who's a bricklayer, yeah, who's walking outside, uh, just outside of London, and he hasn't been unemployed at all. He's 62. But when I talk to my uncles and I talk to my grandfather, you know, the grandfather would have walked through the 30s and 40s, 50s. They were always in an hour of walk. And they, and they had to move to get the walk. So they didn't have that sort of stability happening. Uh, so that, that was the uh, the big improvement in the industry that a building walker is not some casual that's picked up for a day's walk here and a day's walk there. And I think that uh, you know one of the, the real improvements I've seen is the training in the industry. We, uh, we should reflect on uh, how qualified your, build, your average builder's labourer is now. The, the amount of tickets and uh, you know, the level of knowledge that they have. It's not just a pair of arms anymore, a pair of hands. And then a good back, it's, uh, you know, you've got the, the hoist lift and the traffic management and your first aid, your confined spaces. You know, you've got uh, your rigging, your doggy and your scaffolding. The training unit has been one of the wonderful, I remember, when we started, you know, Anne and Paddy Preston walking together in the early to mid-90s, they didn't have... We didn't have too many resources back then. We didn't have the incoming contributions coming into the training unit. And uh, that was built off from scratch, you know, and that's uh, 
and Ankem should be very, and is, I'm sure, very proud of that. Um, but we can all be very proud that we we were part of a of a really um, visionary union. That was leadership on our part, uh, as well as having uh, great people around to achieve it. But yeah, in order to achieve something, you need a division yep. first. You know, uh, it doesn't materialize without the vision. You know, without the leadership. Now, in terms of your time in the industry, are there any episodes, any personalities, any disputes that you look back because they just flick into the back of your head and you suddenly they're just that little thought there? Is there things that you remember or things that you feel particularly, well, proud of? Uh, that, you know, you did something and you thought, well... If I start this, I better bloody well finish it. And you do and you go, geez, I'm glad I did that. Well, when I came back after the disputes panel for the last four years, I had one very significant blue. And um, it's, it's, it's definitely worth a mention on, on a few levels. We had this company called East Coast Development and Engineering from up in Queensland that were bought by a company called Deckmill from West Australia. And I, I was only... I was only back in the job and getting my feet on the ground again and I heard of this job for United Petroleum down in Hastings. It was two, two holding tanks, 25 million litres, one petrol, one, one diesel. About a $27 million project. Never heard of deck mill, never heard of EDE. So I had a Cordell report that said it's going to be starting. I think one of the best things in a union official can do is to get in early. No point in having discussions halfway through the job, you know. So the earlier you can get the things, the better. Anyway, I found out a bit about deck mill. They do a lot of. They actually, I think they they built Manus Island uh, sort of detention centre, and they do a lot of work on the in the west and the mines, uh, accommodation oh, and things yes. like that. You know, places like that. Anyway, I made a few phone calls and we organised a meeting with the project manager and the human resources woman uh, that was leading the charge on the industrial relations strategy. I didn't know at the time of meeting them that they hadn't agreed <laughs> agree with the place, right? Because otherwise I would have read the agreement. But anyway, I just introduced myself and sit down, we have a cup of coffee. And they're very respectful. And it goes on for about an hour and a bit. I'm giving them all the history of Victoria, the building workers in Victoria, and Inco Lincoln and site allowances. Because I noticed that they're not very familiar with anything that I'm saying. Not only are they not familiar... Well, they a bit blank, <laughs> were they? <laughs> they were not showing much interest, you know. So I said to myself, they're very young, very young. Uh, very cocky too, you know. So, But anyway, both respectful. I left the meetings thinking to myself, well, that's probably the most unproductive hour and a half I've ever spent in my working life, you know. Because they listened to me in a reasonable fashion. But they, they weren't interested at all. They were going to do their own thing. But she happened to say, well, well we do have an agreement in place. <laughs> they had registered in the middle of December, the year, the year before. I think this must have been probably March, right? They had registered this document. Nobody's seen it in there and just went through the system. What we found out was that two cane farmers up in air were introduced to a document inside a small coast shed. They obviously didn't need to tend their crops on a weekly basis. So when you're doing the sugar cane, there must be times when you can leave and do other things. They were 
part-time building workers. They signed and agreed to this document. This document had all the classifications known to man, boilermakers, and, and it was a national agreement. And i got to say, young Ralphie boy, that the early rate of this agreement is the worst I've ever seen. There was barely over the awards. It took me back a, a long, long time. And anyway, in another discussion, I just said to her, these rates of pay. She said, yes. I said, where did you get them from? She said, they're only baseline rates. We don't intend to pay the workers staff, but we will, by an agreement, we will. As appropriate as we see fit, in other words, we'll pay them what we want. I said, this is going to be interesting, this one. So they start down in, in Hastings. And uh, you have to be careful what you say. But we had to start from scratch and they had to organise the job from men who hadn't been organised too much. We had some Victorians and we had some uh, metal trades. But we also had some interstaters. And we had a lot of people that had worked in other states and overseas. Yeah, so it was a mixture. It really had to be organised from the ground up and had to be organised inside the gate. It took us a while to get established. There's various people had different ideas as to how you would you would organise and how you would actually achieve success. And everybody's right to their own opinion. But I, I felt we had to do it the hard way and the slow way. And actually win the hearts and minds of the troops. And influence them and, and educate them. And make the comparison between how they were getting rewarded on this job and how they were rewarded on similar jobs in the industry. So, early days, I always remember getting the phone call. They were just putting the floor into one of the tanks. And we get this phone call from a worker who'd been sacked. He was there on a labour hire. Very sort of dodgy arrangement it was. He sort of called in for a couple of days. But it was a Saturday when he was told the services would no longer be required. It just happened to be about... 37 degrees, must have been about January, February. Anyway, when I say it was, totally, it was a particularly hot day, but you can imagine around on a steel floor of a holding tank, steel plates under your feet. This bloke said to me, you know, he was telling me that he was very uncomfortable and he felt as if he was going to faint, you know. And he said to the supervisor, it's more than 35 degrees and it's much more hot here. He said, I'm not feeling it. He said, we shouldn't be walking this. This is 25 degrees, we should be going home. Because we didn't have any representation very early on. And the supervisor said, in Roy Hill, we walk in this all the time. <laughs> so the, the Victorian bloke said, you're not fucking walking in Roy Hill now. This is fucking Victoria. <laughs> we got some fucking standards. <laughs> so he was, he was, the point, he was sacrificed. The man lost his job, even though, you know, we, we couldn't establish a, an employee-employer working relationship. We couldn't take it anywhere because it was called in, apparently, for a few days. And uh, he did what needed to be done, and he was no longer required. It was going to be very difficult legally. But we had a chat amongst the troops on the Monday, and I asked him if he felt that this worker was treated with respect and dignity, and did he have the right to stop work? Even at this stage, there were a bit of a motley crew, as you can imagine. But they did take the view that the man had the right to continue to walk. And he was within his rights to, even though some of them did walk in Roy Hill, that if he wasn't safe and he had it, he should be allowed to express it. And then I asked the troops, now, are you familiar with the heat policy? Mm. What heat policy? Here you go. So 
we don't have a heat policy for you. And I said, well, do you think we might need one? <laughs> and I said, well, I think that might be a good suggestion. So that was the start of it. And they never got any better. I remember going into our legal department, right? I was absolutely ropeable. I went into our legal department and said, surely we can do something about this agreement. I said, this is not right. I got told by our legal department that, that all the legal basis discovered that we couldn't do nothing about this document. And I said, well, we'd like to have a document, including the rights of paying conditions, but also recognising the right to consultation in the workplace and the right to, for a safe working workplace, you know. And I, that's when I could understand the limitations of the so-called Fair Work Act. Now, here, here was two kind farmers up in air in Far North Queensland deciding what everybody around the country was going to get paid, every classification and every stay. And that was the legal document where everybody else later on for the next three years would be employed under. And I said, you can imagine what I was saying, coursing and swearing. Is this what we marched around the streets for? Is this why we put so much effort into getting rid of work choices and AWAs, Australia Workplace Agreements? Is this the best that Labour can, can deliver after all their hard work, after the 2007 election? So I was mightily, you know, I just thought it was on the Fair Work Act. I'd never seen anything so unfair in my life. And this is what they've given us. The trade union movement is a reward for our efforts. The job went for a year more than what it should have. There was a, an oil tanker on the high seas ready to be deposited on the 29th of January, I think. But I think the job got finished in February the following year. And there was no fines. In fact, the only court case was that the, the union... You know, an interesting case because you can imagine I was I was visiting the site because it needed to be visited on a regular basis until we got representation on the site and just built it up as to where we would be happy with it. But uh, we were there all the time, including to the very end. But during the course of when it was when my visits to the site were starting to cost them money uh, and only because of the lack of safety, a lack of consultation. Complete disillusionment of the the rank and file on the job in relation to how management were operating on the job. We 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 gone through three project managers, by the way, at this stage. Everybody got sacked, including the two people I've met. You know, for the cup of cup of coffee, the whole of EDE in Queensland, everybody that was associated got the sack, and the West Australians took over. But they unduly delayed my entry onto site on two occasions. So originally we had them up for obstruction, but in the end they were fined. They pleaded guilty to unduly delaying me getting onto the job. So it was a complete and utter victory. We had it. The client was wondering what was going on, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would have said the client was particularly pissed off, but uh, anyway. You know, without breaching confidences, um, the client was interested in what was going on. You know, he was concerned about the delays on the site. United Petroleum, in their wisdom, suggested that it might be a good idea to sit down and have a chat because there was other holding tanks that needed to be built in a year or two's time. So we had that understanding. So even for that one little job down in Hastings, it was worth coming back for for the last four years. So that does stand out, yes. Just to say that um, it's very important. It can be a lonely experience out there on your own as a union official, especially in the areas that I looked after, you know, down the southeast and out to 
sort of Pakenham Way and down the peninsula. You know, it was, uh, it was you know, I mean, the further you get away from the city, and, and I always uh, respect the, the regional organisers of I, I hold them in great regard because I think they've got the most difficult task of all the officials is to organise in the regional areas. But I get a little bit of that that challenge, if you like, as you move forward and further out of the metropolitan area, and you get an understanding of, of what's achievable and, and, and how you have to sometimes refine your approaches, you know. So, um, But I will say, finish off by saying that... Um, I always had a very good relationship with the with the plumbers and sparkies union in particular, and um, you know, me, me little mate Mickey Montebello was there with me in, in me in me hardest campaigns and my most important battles, and uh, so yeah, so I've known Earl for, uh, and we we always get along, but uh, you know, early days with uh, Alec Van Ingle, and then with with Billy. Um, I think it's very important that we work together as a group of unions. You know, it's it's all about the collective. It's not about individual egos. It's about working with people. It's about, you know, achieving things together, achieving things for the industry, you know. If I have a, a concern about the future, it's the role of EBAs. I, I worry about EBAs, and sometimes I think that long-term we might be building a, a pyramid to the clouds. I think sometimes the you know, it's fantastic that we've got so much infrastructure happening because that's been very good for the troops and very good for the union you know including the the union finances which we haven't really talked about too much but which are at a center to everything but uh, it's very important that what what i can see over the last 25 years is an erosion of the base is that uh, the, the more workers that the union can appeal to the better the broader our basis is better you don't want to end up with a, with a something that's very pointy with, a, with an elite group of workers getting fantastic rates of pay but you've everybody else has been falling off the side as you go up because it's probably fair to say since the 90s the amount of ebas we had in the early days compared to now in the construction industry in particular um i think we need to reflect on and obviously using this more politically um, favourable situation now that we hopefully will, will go for the next at least three but I'm thinking a lot more years that we actually get something from it this time that we get something much more than the Fair Work Act and actually achieve a, a broadening of the base that the, the union actually is relevant to more and more workers not less and less and I think that's the big challenge for the future just reflecting on that, they're talking now, I heard Tony Burke, the Minister, talking about industry agreements. Well, basically, the leadership back in the 90s campaigned for, within the union, within the rank and file, for an industry EBA. We achieved it, we've maintained it. And it certainly shows where building and construction workers are now compared to so many other sectors. And for the Labor Party to be finally talking about it, what's been proven by the CFMEU and other unions in the construction industry. Well, How it, does it take so long to work out the bloody obvious? That's right. Well, we've always been able to use our strengths to look after our people who are probably less 
in, in an industrial position to look after themselves. So we've always been interested in the industry as a whole and industry agreements. That's the wonderful thing about the Green Book. It's an industry-wide agreement. The user has an organising tool. Instead of just maybe focusing on getting massive, and it is not a criticism, but, but this is just for something somebody to reflect on, that it's not about a small group of workers getting huge amounts of side allowance, for instance, to me. And maybe my history out in the back blocks has obviously shaped my thinking on this. But I think we need to, to spread some fundamental benefits it's void, cast the net as void as possible and use, like they say that in 1956 here when the Olympic Games was about, the billing unions used that as an opportunity to, to introduce industry standards that would exist after, with all this infrastructure projects that's going on. We need to talk about some basic standards so that any government school, even if it's only a $5 million job, that the workers on that job would get benefits that, they've, that we've enjoyed for a long, long time. You know, the simple things like site allowances and, and income link and things like that. Some minimum set of benefits and have an industry-wide agreement and industry standards. That's that's where, you know, in the start of my working life, I felt that we've had it. Uh, and, and I don't think there's a better way of organising the industry than, than to have a, a, an industry-wide agreement for Victoria. Right, well, on that positive note... We might uh, conclude today's interview for Creatures of the Industry. Yeah, we've gone a fair time, Fergal, as he looks at his watch, but listen. It's been terrific, reflecting upon not only your own career in the industry in Ireland, England and Australia, but also your thoughts on the very basic nature of trade unionism, what's needed to be done and what has to be done into the future. So again, Fergal Doyle, thank you very much for this interview. Well, it's always a pleasure spending time with you, Ralphie. Thank you, brother, and we uh, better sign off right now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allwithsomebyesforaheartandweeklypay we all of us are workers, united we must stand Until the wealthy bludgers have been driven from our land We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our gains and break a couple of concrete pours to back our log of claims. So keep your powder dry and hold your head up high. It's glass to glass and face to face, our limit is the sky. We've got a fighting history and we never will be cowed. Our builders' labour is a name.